Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners or on the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter and we are going to be joined by Stefan and Lauren in the second segment and uh, Saren unfortunately cannot join us this week. Um, But before all this, I will say some words um, by means of a brief whatever. So, we have been soaking our plants, seeds, and soil in nerve agents for decades, and the manufacturers of these products have committed huge resources to spinning and sullying the science that has been condemning them from the beginning. This is similar to the way we've been powdering our newborns with carcinogens for decades, since it recently came to light that Johnson & Johnson has been lying about the toxicity of their talcum powder since the early 70s. Both of these situations resemble that of fossil fuels, as we have understood the science of greenhouse gases since the 60s. In many instances, the very same industry officials, whose job it has been to skew the science, become government officials, and government officials in turn often become industry leaders, such that it becomes the interest of the government to skew science in favor of private profiteers. We are seeing this very starkly right now in regards to the EPA in the United States. Because a consumer can't make free decisions if they don't have accurate information, these so-considered free market champions are hereby allowed to choke the very freedom of the market, and their representatives are often given direct input into the regulatory tools that are meant to constrain their misinformation campaigns. On a note that is perhaps only theoretically related, in an era of global health catastrophe, the malaria drug hydroxychloroquine will see a sales boost, as Donald Trump has announced that he himself is taking it, even though he isn't infected, as if it were a ginseng pill that can be used to just keep the virus at bay like a common cold, and Jair Bolsonaro is pushing a similar drug in Brazil. Neither have yet been proven definitively as effective treatments for COVID, and both come with potentially dangerous side effects. Thankfully, however, this is an environmental show, so there's no need to dive too deeply into the living Hieronymus Bosch painting that the COVID fiasco has become, and listeners can look to other sources to witness the immensity of the joyless and cruel confusion that is warping the Americas. We instead get to turn to the ever-strange task of summarizing and interpreting other people's reporting on the health of the environment and its hopes of improving. Today we are going to discuss migrant farm workers in Ontario, some positive renewable energy developments, and various stories about insects, bees, pesticide companies, and butterflies. But first, to continue this intro, I must point out that atmospheric CO2 levels are continuing to climb, that environmental activists are continuing to fall victim to murder, as there have been at least 100 environmental and indigenous leaders killed this year in Colombia alone, that Venice is building seawalls that will probably be obsolete before they're finished, since the seas are now rising faster than was being predicted when the project began, 2.4 million people in Bangladesh and 800,000 people in India 
have had to evacuate their homes to flee Cyclone Amphan. And a new study has come out in Science Advances that observes that combined heat and humidity levels, known as wet bulb heat index or real feel temperatures, are already reaching deadly thresholds in several places around the world. Many people die from humid heat even at wet bulb readings of 28 degrees Celsius, but the upper limit for any person is thought to be 35 degrees Celsius. This means that even in otherwise perfect circumstances, in which a person is young, healthy, fit, sitting immobile in the shade and in possession of unlimited drinking water, they will still die if the wet bulb is at 35 degrees Celsius or higher, which has been measured now in a few places and at slightly lower levels in others. But forget about those perfect conditions, because many places that are at risk of this are areas of subsistence farming, which, for those who don't know, requires a good deal of physical labor in direct sunlight. Now that I've enumerated all these excuses for depression, we should acknowledge the importance of taking care of one's mind, even if things are falling apart wherever one looks. Even before COVID hit, many people were reporting that mental health was on the decline, in some measure exacerbated by the daunting intensity of the climate crisis, and now we have been forced to sacrifice much of what was otherwise preoccupying us in order to battle COVID. Uh, and that's putting it very lightly, since many are having to choose between life-risking work and starvation, while still others are not allowed to work and are also not being given any food. If, however, one is feeling depressed from perceived helplessness in the face of the immensity of climate change, know that there are still protests and disruptions and interventions happening for climate justice across Europe by various green groups, including XR and Greenpeace, and online organization is happening as well. And, if I remember correctly, taking such action can alleviate existential dread, as you witness yourself taking meaningful action in the direction of your dreams, even if such action seems minuscule and incomplete, it is still good and worthwhile. And to finish this segment off, I would like to turn to a mystical nature poem by Robert Duncan called The Natural Doctrine. As I came needing wonder, as the new shoots need water, to the letter A, that sounds its mystery in wave and in wane. Trembling I bent as if there were a weight in words, like that old man bends under his age towards death. But it is the sun that sounds day from the first brink. It is the sea that in its dazzling holds my eye. How under the low roof of desolate gray a language not of words lies waiting. There's depth, weight, force at the horizon that levels all images. Rabbi Aaron of Baghdad meditating upon the word and the letters Yod and Hay came upon the name of God and achieved a pure rapture in which a creature of his ecstasy that was once dumb clay, the golem, danced and sang and had being. Reading of this devout Jew, I thought there may be such power in a certain passage of a poem that eternal joy may leap therefrom. 
but it was for a clearing of the sky, for a blue radiance, my thought cried. Sublime Turner, who dying, said to Ruskin, The sun is God, my dear. Knew the actual language is written in rainbows. And we're going to return now to a very good article in the Toronto Star by Sarah Mushtahedzada about the people who pick our food for us in Ontario. <clears throat> Mushtahedzada begins by noting that migrant farm workers uh, coming to Canada from Jamaica are being warned that they're putting themselves at greater risk of contracting COVID-19 by coming here but are being forced to sign waivers saying the government of Jamaica is not responsible for any damages that may result from that. It also turns out that these temporary Jamaican workers who come to Ontario are not being told anything about their rights, either by the Ontarian government or by the people employing them. And even though the federal government officially requires two weeks of paid quarantine upon arrival, some workers are being forced to start immediately. Even though the government is giving these farms money to help them observe health protocols, many workers are uh, not being given proper isolation. Some have been told that they'll have to pay back their isolation pay uh, later in the season. And even though they're officially entitled to OHIP, some are not receiving any information about access to that health care if they become sick. A Jamaican worker who was interviewed for the piece said that there was no food in the house that they were not allowed to leave, and it wasn't clear if anything was being done about it. Mashtahedzada writes, quote, uh, Migrant worker advocates have warned that long-standing poor working and living standards on Canadian farms put seasonal laborers at greater risk of contracting the virus, due in large part to workers' precarious immigration status and poor enforcement of workplace and housing standards. And she notes that migrant workers in Ontario who take part in Canada's Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program, or SOP, the majority of whom are Mexican, are often fired and deported for complaining about medical neglect, abuse, poor sanitation, pest infestations, and overcrowding, and at least... Uh, at least at one Ontarian farm, there were, quote, bunk beds for 50 workers in an unfinished basement with no bathroom facilities, with beds curtained off with garbage bags for privacy. There are around 15,000 fewer workers than Canadian farms need every year, so we have a shortage of them, and their work is among the most essential in the country, and still, we treat them as disposable and unworthy of basic living standards. Yeah, I feel like if last week's show sort of was a bit about uh, Canada's shame in regards to the mining industry, uh, this may be the, the the way that Canada, Canada, and you know the states as well uh, treats the if migrant workers has got to be right up there along with in the, in the same stance like if COVID-19 has shown any, anything it is what is essential and who is essential and the, and that is these people and yet like they're paid less than minimum wage 
Like it is a complete travesty how how this is done. But to you, Lauren. Um. Yeah. Uh. So so I guess sort of like first off, I want to say like for any listeners who might be wondering why we're an environment podcast talking about issues related to migrant worker justice. Um. To me, it's because the issues presented in this story are sort of a perfect cross-section exemplifying why solutions to climate have to be intersectional and have to be cross-sectional because um, these are underappreciated, underpaid, non-unionized workers who are super vulnerable and they're oppressed migrants um, (laughs) and they're precariously employed and precariously housed and they're responsible for feeding all of us. And regardless of whether or not you might be somebody who who buys into the idea that if we're going to get through the climate crisis, we have to eat locally and we have to eat primarily vegetarian food, we still have to eat. And these are still the people who are providing us with that food. And if we're not treating them ethically and if we're not making sure they're being cared for, then then I don't know, what's the point in, in working for climate solutions in the first place? Um, I think one of the other sort of points that was raised when I was reading this piece uh, was, was something the agricultural minister Bebo said that really sort of caught me off guard and, and frustrated me because she said that we can, we can trust the, these employers care for the, uh, the health of their community. We can trust that they care for the health of their workers. And it's like, can we? Because all of the workers who were cited within this piece were talking about the depraved conditions they are working under and the great risk that their employers are willing to put them through as long as it means that that the employer can get can get the food pulled out of the ground and sent to market as quickly as possible so this is sort of an example of a situation where um these employees aren't being taken care of and the industry is under-regulated. And when it is regulated, those regulations aren't being properly enforced by the government because they they throw away things like, oh, well, we can trust these people. As long as we put out this policy, we can trust that these farmers are going to follow this policy. These workers will be fine. And when this is very, very, very clearly not the case. Yeah. And yeah. And to to jump off that, you know, the fact that what you're creating is an incredible power imbalance, right? Because these workers are only allowed in Canada because we've give, because the government refuses to give them permanent resident status, refuses to give them any any of the other protections. That they're only allowed to be there for as long as their employers are are employing them, which is ripe for 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 neglect, right? It's it's absolutely the kind of situation that will be well, that will be used to harm these people, like. Like you cannot say that like the only way to ensure these people be protected would be to actually start treating them like the skilled laborers that they are, you know, like the, like the idea that this is not skilled labor, I think immediately has vanishes when the fact that, you know, there are 15,000 fewer laborers that we, than we need right now and also massive unemployment. And for some reason, those two things can't cross, right? Like this is a skilled job that you need skilled people to be doing and they should be treated like the skilled laborers, laborers that they are and given all of the protections that, that are required. And, you know, oh, sorry, no, I was going to say, and we need to make sure that that things like their housing and their health care aren't tied to their jobs and aren't tied to their employment. And and I know that factually on paper, yes, they're provided with OHIP by nature of being here. But we also know that they're being deprived of the resources in order to tap into things like OHIP. So they, they effectively lack health care while they're here. And as Canadians, we're often really sort of 
high on our healthcare horse, especially in comparison to the States. And we look at situations in, in America where people only have healthcare if it's tied to their employment. And we're really scornful of that as because we as a nation believe that we have a universal healthcare system. But this is an example really clearly in which we are no better than the States because these are people whose, whose housing and healthcare and well-being is directly tied to their employment. And that shouldn't be the case if it's if, if we truly have a universal healthcare system. Yeah, and if if I can pull from uh, the Migrants Rights Network, uh, I was did a little background on this, uh, which it, part of their point, one of the things they were mentioning, which was that like, you know, we're seeing places all across Canada where people who are responsible for uh, feeding us are being pushed back into unsafe working conditions uh, because that because of the fact that we see this as, as essential and so they're being you know and so they we're demanding that these people continue working and they can't say no because that would then either in these cases actually f- basically have them shipped back and uh, in, in, in like you know they'd lose their 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 home basically they lose their work here um, but also the fact that they would then be you know you, there, if you if you refuse work, you you don't get unemployment benefits. There's all like if, even if you are an already landed immigrant, you know there's there's distinctions there. Um, but you know like if we're going to be forcing people like you know the the cargo meat plant in in Alberta has gotten a ton of attention because four different people have died. I think over a thousand coronavirus cases came out of that one meatpacking plant, and yet people were forced back because. Um, because they decided that that was an essential service that we all have meat. And if you're going to call it essential, then treat these people like the essential workers they are and protect them. You know, it's, it's, you only, you can only do one or the other because to argue otherwise is to simply declare that our citizens comfort is worth the exploitation of others. And if you want to state that, go ahead. But I think that's deplorable. (laughs) Like that's it. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think my last sort of thought on this is um, sort of something I was thinking about while I was reading this story is that issues like this demonstrate to me why it's so clear that the ways in which we develop policy and the ways in which we sort of um, segment issues into, into little silos based on ministries or based on specific MP portfolios is, is inherently really flawed because you have, you have a an issue or a problem like this, the issue of, of maltreatment of migrant um, and seasonal agricultural workers. And right now, seemingly, what I can glean from this article is that it's entirely falling under the responsibility of the agricultural minister, uh, Minister Bebo, when in actuality, this is an issue that spans multiple um ministries from what I can understand. Yes, it deals with with issues of agriculture, but it deals with issues of labor um, and migrant justice. Um, So so like dealing with issues of immigration, dealing with issues related to health and dealing with issues related to climate. So how, how are we supposed to effectively develop policy solutions to a problem that is so intersectional and does span so many jurisdictions when when the policy solutions are only being drafted by one minister or one minister's office? Um, And obviously, I don't really have a solution for that um, because I I don't know how we should restructure our government. But it was just something that I was thinking about. And if you do want to take some more action or learn how you can help, uh, you can go to migrantrights.ca to learn more. Uh, There's a whole bunch of resources and actual uh, campaigns that they're currently operated in. Uh, But let's move on to something a little more directly related to climate and Ontario. So our friend Emma McIntosh uh, has recently reported for the National Observer how an Ontario court has overturned last year's hasty decision by Environment Minister Jeff Urich 
to cancel the Nation Rise wind farm after it was already partially built. The cancellation was in keeping with Doug Ford's vendetta against every wind project in the province, which is not hyperbole, since he said in December that he would tear up every wind turbine in the province if he could. But at least one partially complete project uh, has now been saved, along with a whole bunch of public money that would have gone to compensate the company, which would have lost uh, $230 million if the project was cancelled. The Ontario government, meanwhile, has already spent at least that much, cancelling 750 renewable energy projects thus far, and recently uh, purchasing three natural gas plants from TC Energy for $2.8 billion. The reason for the court overturning the cancellation of this wind farm was that Yurik's argument was scientifically unsound. His reason was that the wind turbines will hurt local bat populations, but he was wrong. Emma McIntosh ends her article by pointing out that cancelling such projects while they're already approved or under uh, construction hurts Ontario's business reputation. Yeah, there's a there's a great deal of irony here that the businessman uh, that you know the, so that the, the businessman premier uh, loses a court battle and it's going to save us two hundred thirty million dollars, like that that we are <laughs> fighting we were fighting we were paying lawyers to argue that we should lose two hundred thirty million dollars for nothing like that was what was happening here. It, I have more, but to you, Lauren. Yeah, I don't. I don't have anything sort of genius or groundbreaking to say here. Um, I do just want to acknowledge that, like, this is a fantastic win. But how heartbreaking that this is the win that we have to get stoked over when so much has been taken away. Um, and I just, I really, really hope um, that. I feel like there's a large segment of the Ontario population that is of the mind that there's no way that Ford is going to be reelected. Um, I really, really am afraid that Ford is going to be able to sort of ride the wave of unearned good PR, depending on how we fare through COVID and depending on how Ontario fares through COVID and the decisions that like really well-qualified people in public health are making. I'm afraid that Ford is going to be able to sort of like ride on their coattails and be able to point to himself and say like, see, Ontario fared well through COVID. That's because of me. And then because of that, people are going to turn around and reelect him. Um, despite the fact that so far, his his ratings have been falling, and he's doing a terrible job, and nobody's happy with him. Uh, that's just sort right. of a weird fear I have. That's maybe like off. And maybe it's not really a possibility. Maybe I don't need to be afraid about Ford being reelected and continuing to like totally ravage any progress we've made environmentally in the past twenty years in this province. But um, but I'm still scared. I do think the fact that there's this rally around your leader, especially if they're even medium compliment, compliment, uh, compliment, competent at this moment. And, and it should not be, we cannot forget how terrible the Ford government was and remains in many ways. You know, like even what I think earlier the, last week, May 15th, uh, the, the Eco Justice took uh, has basically submitted a uh, a demand to the Ford government uh, to explain and sort of to actually uh, well it was an ask to undo what they had done in regards to uh, the, their decision to suspend a broad range of environmental protection laws uh, that basically would allow the province to push through environmentally significant projects or policy changes without consulting or even notifying the public, which like to me. I, there's an argument to be made around 
you know, you want need to do things quickly during a time emergency, and so you want to like slow processes. But notification doesn't take more time. Like you can tell people things for free immediately. You're the government. You can just release a document saying you did a thing. You can tweet about it. I don't care. But like it's in it's unconscionable to me that like you would that both of those would be on the chopping block. Like you can make an argument for one of them in regards to COVID, maybe I still would fight you on it. But like the fact that you cannot you can avoid notifying the public about the changes you're making to me is is much more concerning. Yeah, I'm remembering that I think we actually talked about this several podcast episodes ago. The world is just such a dumpster fire that that we've since forgotten. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. unfortunately, yeah. I can't I can't reference the episode or the week that we talked about it. I just know that we have in previous in previous episodes. We have indeed. Yes. Uh, to slightly less depressing news, uh, which honestly, given the state of other things in the UK, is rare. Uh, the UK. Turning to some positive developments in the UK. London Mayor Sadiq Khan uh, wants to repurpose the city as it comes out of the COVID lockdown, announcing that he will close off huge areas of major roads to cars and limit them to buses, cyclists, and pedestrians. Meanwhile, the city's transit authority is predicting that cycling could increase tenfold after the lockdown, and they are working towards rapid construction of a strategic cycling framework so fewer people have to take transit as well as a complete transformation of local town centers and creating what they call low-traffic neighborhoods. There are also major wind farms being planned around the UK, both onshore and offshore, as well as major investments in electricity storage. And wild white storks have hatched in the UK for the first time in centuries. Yeah, so this needs to be the response of every major city. Like, I, I think major cities are going to be in this very weird and difficult time because they rely on density at a time when density is not currently in vogue, arguably uh, is discouraged greatly and you must stay six feet apart from everyone. And so the way that cities respond to that, that the combat, those two pressures, I think will define a lot of cities for the next for the next five, 10 years. And yeah, I think it's super important uh, to you, Lauren. Yeah, um, this was a really, really sort of exciting, um, I, I don't want to say initiative because it's, it's clearly a series of initiatives. It's a, large, it's a large package, but it's really, really great to see it coming from, uh, from, of all places, London, which is like a big, fancy metropolis on the world stage, really popular. Um, And they're making these kind of moves and that they're making these kind of moves right now, showing that like this is a pivotal moment. This is a perfect time to be implementing traffic reducing measures and measures that will uh, benefit pedestrians, benefit cyclists, um, benefit people's lives who who live in the core, but also serve sort of like a dual purpose of of also reducing carbon emissions as well. And I I really hope that these measures are implemented and I hope they're really well publicized because I know the city I'm living in right now, Ottawa, has has tried to implement some of these measures in certain cases. You'll we have a few really, really great counselors who are backed by really awesome community organizations who are trying to to implement these same things and on a smaller scale. Um, and they're getting a lot of pushback. So um yeah, uh again, just really hoping that 
that these initiatives are successful in London and that we can then make an example of them and point to them and say, look at how well this is going for a city with population in the millions and a city that deals with density issues and a city that, that deals with uh, high traffic, high volume, really um, busy marketplace areas. Because then if we can point to these success stories, it makes it easier to then sort of hop on the bandwagon and just follow the trend in other less progressive cities like Ottawa, for instance. <laughs> yeah. And that Toronto has tried a set of similar things. They, they, for the first time in forever, shut down a number of street, streets last weekend uh, for what they called active TO so people can get out. And yet those are still just streets. People loved it. They People flocked to the, you know, people wanted it, but it was still like, it's still not rethinking. It's, it's, it sort of was still framed or still feels like to me as a, um, as like a gimmick, you know, it's not an ethos. It's a gimmick, right? It's like, oh, try walking on the street versus like, let's actually make walking and biking a real response. You know, there was a, I believe after that occurred, there was a, there was a response article. I think it was an article or a letter published in the Toronto Star where someone was like, why are we giving so much space to non-transportation based options like biking and walking? And you're like, what do you think these people are doing if not transporting themselves? Like what's happening here? Um, and, and I do think that like, we're, we're going to see really my big concern here is like the public transit is going to have a hard time for the next little while. Um, you know, until they until people feel safe again to be close to people, public transit is not going to be an option that people are going to love. And so, you know, we're already seeing conversations like the city of Edmonton has talked about shutting down their entire bus network for all of the summer. You know, the TTC has already cut back massive cut back because they because they can't afford it. And the city of Toronto can't run a deficit, so it can't even find money to help them. And so, like, unless someone steps up, we are going to we could see a significant decrease in usefulness in in public transportation at a time when that could not be more 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 necessary. And so, like, unless cities find other cheaper ways to respond, we are we are or, or other ways to encourage people to walk or bike or do other things we might just see a, a, a bounce back of, of massive car-based travel, which would be a disaster for urban planning like it has been for the the last hundred years, really. Yeah, I'm I'm imagining just a sort of, I think sort of like my last thoughts, it's like I'm, I'm imagining sort of a possible world where people understand that it's safer from a pandemic standpoint to stay within your community and to stay within a small area and our cities respond accordingly and open up avenues for people to engage in active transportation. So that means you're getting people walking to their local grocery store instead of driving to the fancy Whole Foods five kilometers away or whatever. Um, and, and yeah, I'm sort of imagining this like best case scenario where it's like, yes, maybe public transportation is down, but active transportation sort of like steps up to fill in that blank because we're all used to just sort of staying within our tight neighborhoods and communities. Um, but I'm also aware of the fact that, that that might not be what happens and that might just be wishful thinking. But for now, I think I need to stick with wishful thinking, at least at least for the next little bit to get me through. Yeah. And, and I think that's what needs to happen, right? Like th that, like the, uh, the last thing, of course, would be that I think that one thing you might really see out of this is the is the death of commuter culture. You know, like I think if, if, if anything, this has taught us that people can work from home uh, if we have if they have to. Uh, and therefore, I hope a lot of people stop commuting in, especially if you have these long hour, two hour long commutes into your office. If that stops and you're able to work from wherever you are and, and that's fine, 
then you really might see a, a transformative change and people might be able to start using these spaces as not just thoroughfares. Uh, but, but yeah, I think I'm, 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 I'm skeptical, but I'm going to stick with you, Lauren, in, in, in hope as well. Red is a fast color always zooming away. This was something everyone knew. And here they come, the people from the Bible. And we are now turning to insects, bees, and butterflies. So the largest bug study in the world, completed a year after the previous largest bug study in the world, has found that insect losses uh, worldwide are not as dire as previously thought, but are still very dire and still very bad for the pollinator insects that are a major part of our food security. Global insect numbers appear to have dropped by almost a quarter in the past 30 years, but there is very much that remains unknown, and the rate of loss is still changing. Another study completed a few months ago measured how many insects are being hit by cars as they drive through certain areas in Denmark and the UK, and insect abundance in those areas appears to have dropped by 80% over 21 years in the Danish study, and 50% over 15 years in the UK study. Experts are calling for phasing out pesticides, diversifying farmland, reducing light, noise, and water pollution, and doing more for species conservation, among other measures. Deutsche Well reported in January, quote, Insects play a vital role in ecosystems, and humans are particularly dependent on them for food. Where fewer earthworms replenish soil, and dwindling bee and butterfly populations struggle to pollinate crops, food supplies could drop catastrophically. An IPBES report estimated that up to $577 billion in annual crop output is at risk uh, as a result of pollinator loss alone. All this is happening, of course, as a combined effect of all the ways we're harming the environment, including climate change, but it's also true that rising global temperatures will make it easier for certain bugs to destroy our crops, since uh, research has shown that higher-than-normal heat makes tomato plants overcompensate in the way they naturally deter pests, which makes them less, suset- less able to cool down, leading to a kind of heat stroke and a complete victory for the caterpillars that are eating them. Yeah, so I, I sort of feel like going to be a bit of a broken record both on this show and also uh, flashbacks to people who have listened to the show before. But I, this is, again, partially why so much or such a big part of the conversation around dealing with, you know, the ecological catastrophe that we are you know walking towards right now as a species uh, is is one of the pillars of that has to include a massive change in how we deal with agriculture. You know, um, wh- right now in the way that agriculture has been building up in the past, over the past 50, 60 years approximately, um, and, you know, trends from more than that, uh, is around maximizing yield and then also sort of unreasonably connected to very particular things. Uh, especially in the states, the 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 connection to the corn industry and the soy industry for how the how the United States gives money out to farmers is 
incredibly destructive. But uh, but there's this mythos that that the that the that the that these are the staple American crops, or at least corn is staple American crop, or that that supporting these crops is supporting farmers specifically. But what it's actually doing is entrenching a system that is destructive and and very dangerous. You know, if you're going to build up these, the only way to manage these monocultures uh, of of one very particular type of say corn is to is to massively increase pesticide use and then also to ship in nitrogen from other places which is uh, d- destructive to both where they're pulling it from and also to uh, it's also very you know it's it's very carbon intensive and so you know when we the insects here that are getting killed off by these pesticides um, in in part because we're trying to prop up a a completely brittle food system which is, you know, brittle in both senses of the fact that, like, it will not do well with many temperature changes. Uh, you know, the, they, they get these things get, you know, con- the, the way to maximize yield is to is to get them to exactly the way that you need them to do it. So they're not good for temperature changes. And then also um, in relation to to how well they will they will then deal with other 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 pests or things like that. And so basically, if if we get a bad, you know, can you imagine what it would be like right now, living in how we are now, and 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 dealing with all the other stresses? If there happened to be a very hot summer that that just that decimated our our wheat crops for for whatever reason, you know, we're we're not building up any type of sustainability around how we're doing food, and that by doing the types of things that were listed that you just listed as ways to actually deal with helping insects, like. Changing changing how we are farming to a to a way that actually is more regenerative farming also helps insects, which then also helps other things. So it's interesting that like we sort of see it can get t- distressing that you sort of notice that one pillar in our ecosystems you know knocked down four or five or six, but it also means the opposite. Taking care of and and actually responding to uh, to the needs of of, a, of the of the earth within one sector like agriculture would have knockoff benefits in the same way that destroying it has knockoff harms. I don't understand what you mean by monocultures being impacted by temp more impacted by temperature changes. Uh, basically, you when you when you prioritize and when you when you the. The main fault of of of, of sort of modify, genetically modifying organisms to to be very specific to, to maximize yield, the the way you maximize yield is that you you get them to be perfectly suited for for the for the area they're in, and all and every single plant is the same plant, so the genome of the plant is identical, meaning that if meaning that they will have the same range of temperatures they can handle or not. Whereas if you had a much more diverse set of crops, some might be harm some might be harmed at one temperature or would not grow as big in temperature, but others will still survive. And so that differentiation becomes super dangerous in a world where weather gets less and less, you know, expected. Mm, All right. So now we'll move on to bees. Um, Annette McGivney published an article for The Guardian back in January in which she detailed the plight of the honeybee in the U.S., showing how industrial almond plantations that rent beehives seasonally from beekeepers are making whole ecosystems precarious for all kinds of native bees, since the European honeybee, which is the kind cultivated for industrial agriculture, 
outcompete other species in places that already that are already largely monocultured, potentially pesticide heavy and weakened by climate change. This is causing even the honeybees that are bred for the purpose to die in huge numbers every season, just trying to pollinate the hazardous and massive almond orchards. Uh, McGivney also points out that 50 billion bees died two winters ago, the highest number recorded from pesticides, diseases, habitat loss, and the systemic pressures of industrial agriculture. She concludes by giving us the example of 81-year-old Glenn Anderson, who runs a biodiverse and pesticide-free almond orchard where he lets the ground grow almost wild so that the soil will, that, so that the soil will be healthy and the trees will be strong without having to treat them. He argues that industrial almonds taste like cardboard by comparison and that beekeepers actually bring hives to his property to recharge. McGivney notes, quote, Experts say that simply working around the pesticide problem isn't enough and that farming itself must be changed from the ground up. But she does note the problem of neonics, or neonic cottonoids, which is a class of neuroactive insecticide that was the subject of a major intercept report by Lee Fang back in January. Fang gives us a deep dive into the history of neonics, how they were, de- how they were first developed by Bayer, the company that now owns Monsanto, and became their most profitable product until it was banned in Europe, while meanwhile they have been able to keep them in huge circulation in Canada and the U.S., thanks to a massive propaganda campaign in which they infiltrated government agencies and publicly funded documentaries and effectively paid off scientists. He notes that when neonics were first brought out in the 90s, uh, they were the first new class of insecticide to hit the market in 50 years. And they were seen by many as a virtually non-toxic chemical that you could soak your seeds and your soil in, even though beehives in France started collapsing suddenly as soon as they started being used, and the bees started to go mad. Similar effects were eventually observed in Italy, Germany, Slovenia, and the UK, and the EU suspended the use of neonics and eventually banned them in 2018 to protect the bees, although they have been found to harm all kinds of pollinators and even birds, and in some cases, large mammals. American scientists have drawn similar conclusions, Uh, notably finding in 2009 that honeybees were being hurt by neonics uh, even when exposed to undetectable levels of the chemical. Industry backers in and outside of government agencies have been sowing misinformation about the profitable chemicals ever since science started coming out against them, and they have successfully shifted the whole debate towards the varroa mite and away from pesticides as an explanation of why honeybees have been in such major decline in the U.S. and Canada, even though it has been shown that neonics also make bees more susceptible to those very mites. Several bunk scientific studies bought and paid for by industry to provide excuses for the continued use of neonics have been carried out in Canada, uh, including one at the University of Guelph in Ontario. Government workers have lost their jobs over failing to follow the script on the chemicals, and think tanks have been turned into industry propaganda arms for the purpose of continuing to product uh, to market this product. There was a brief push to restrict its use in the U.S. a few years ago, 
but even the smallest restrictions put forward by states were defeated after hearings uh, were held involving a whole bunch of so-called experts who knew almost nothing about bees. And then after Trump was elected, even the small wins against the chemical were reversed, and its use is now as prevalent as ever, even as Bayer is losing court battles uh, to people who got cancer from using their herbicides. Yeah, so not to, again, to, to get back to one quick uh, piece of this agriculture piece. First of all, uh, we're recording this on World Bee Day, uh, May 20th on Wednesday. So happy, bee, well, happy World Bee Day, everyone. Two days late as you'll hear it, but still. Uh, but th- this is a one of the things about this, like, you know, earlier you said so the idea of like actually soaking your plants in these types of response. And one of the major problems uh, with, with gen- genetically modified uh, foods, which I think, you know, is is the fact that they are designed to be able to be sort of protected by, from these um, from from this particular uh, from a particular herbicide, and so what they do basically is they is now given that Bayer and in, in Monsanto is, is is owns both sides of this, you you simultaneously are mod, you own the rights to the seeds and you own the rights to the. Um, to the to the the herbicide itself, and so you're selling people on the seeds, and then you're making you're 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 often making those seeds uh, required to buy them year after year. You can't even seed save; you have to keep buying those seeds. And the only way to stay competitive is to do that, and then also buy the herbicides that are then you can then massively overspray because it won't hurt your plants, but will do terrible things to the rest of the environment. And the combination of those two things is is a huge problem, and so. That's that's got to be part of this conversation here is just the fact that like, you know, this is this is this is the issue. And part of the reason why we we what you need desperately is to um, allow for people and companies who are trying to do a better job or better way to not get priced out of the market by the people who are willing to destroy the world, destroy the you know, excuse me, world, but destroy the, the their own landscape and their own ecosystems to, to make more money. Well, the um, thing with the soaking the seeds in the neonicotinoids is that with this chemical, apparently, you can just soak the seed in the ground, and then the plant that grows out of the seed as a result of that doesn't need to be sprayed again. Mm. So, uh, but but I guess the bees pulling the, from it then get get infested with it. Yeah, and it's still just sort of sprayed otherwise as well. But the herbicide is a different thing, right? The neonicotinoid is a pesticide. Right. The herbicides are are uh, things that are causing cancer in humans. Oh, I see. It's a different right. product. All right, and I guess the herbicides are actually, I guess, right, would be would be for um, would be for plants and other and other invasive plant species, whereas pesticides would be for bugs. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of bugs, our last story. Uh, so finishing off joyfully on this buzz, buzz, buzz B day, as Stefan just said. We shall note that last year's warm summer in the UK, with its healthy mix of sunshine and rain, brought the country its best year for butterflies in 22 years, with some butterfly species uh, growing in numbers by 51%, 138%, and even 175% compared with previous years. Yeah. 
Um, and I will say that uh, last year we covered a story in which monarch butterflies were also making a big comeback after being decimated. I, I haven't heard any story from this year, but uh, if I can give everyone, you know, it's it's a dark time, but the weather is getting a bit nicer. So if you have a chance, go outside, socially distance from people, but uh, but get a chance to see some butterflies and enjoy the enjoy the weather. 